be with Pastor Jamie and Pastor Mark, that you'd be with them and uh, strengthen them, Lord, as well as the deacons of that church. We thank you for their friendship and their kindness over the years. Lord, that you would, um, again, be with them and give them great joy this morning as they gather together. Father, we pray for uh, the trouble around the world. We continually pray for the war in Ukraine, that, Lord, you would um, accomplish your purposes, that, Lord, you would draw many to yourself through this war, both Ukrainian and Russian, that, Lord, only the years ahead will show of the work that you do um, in the midst of such suffering and strife, whether that is in the lives of soldiers on both sides or whether it's civilians, to those grieving the losses of family members on both ends. Lord, war is a terrible thing, and we are just called to cry out that, Lord, you would return quickly that, Lord, you would set things straight, that all might be brought before you and every knee would bow and every tongue confess that you are God. Lord, we pray for your church in those lands that you would strengthen them as they meet together on this Lord's Day and no doubt already met, Lord, this morning, but that you would be with them this Lord's Day and strengthen them. Lord, we pray for the chaos in Syria and Turkey after these large earthquakes and aftershocks, many still in the rubble. Lord, as they cry out to you for mercy, would you answer that prayer and send teams to them that more might be rescued if that is your work that you are desiring to do, Lord, amongst them. Father, we pray for those who are grieving their loved ones that have already been lost, that you would be with them, that you would be with the first responders that are seeking to um, go through the rubble and yet provide um, security in the midst of such chaos. Lord, that you would be with the nations that are responding with teams to help. We pray for even those that are um, with other organizations like Samaritan's Purse and others that are uh, experts in disaster relief, that you would be with them and each person on the ground as they need your strength this hour. And Lord, that you would give uh, much energy to them. And Lord, that you would um, give much help that they might be relieved as well. God, we pray for our own country as um, we see uh, national security threats, it seems, and things being shot out of the sky that uh, we still don't know exactly what they are, that you would just uh, help us to trust you, uh, Lord, but we ask that you would give our national leaders wisdom, our governors, uh, surrounding nations in North America, that you would give us wisdom about these things. Lord, our trust is in you, and while we uh, take much security for granted day to day as uh, Americans, Lord, would you help us to humble ourselves and call out to you for um, it's only by your grace that we are sustained day by day. Lord, we ask um, for your kindness to us as a congregation as we go through very tough times. God, would you show mercy to this congregation? Would you bind up our hearts? 
and help us through this season that we might again rejoice in you and trust you. God, we pray that you would be with those who are sick. We pray that you would um, be with those that are still grieving loved ones that have died, and Lord, that you would bind up their hearts. God, would you uh, make yourself known in all those ways that we are troubled. Lord, we lift up Kirsten to you, Lord, who has told us just the other day that she's found another, they found another melanoma spot, and we pray that you would um, give the doctors wisdom to remove that, that you would relieve her anxiety. Lord, others that have uh, got troubling diagnoses this week, that you would be with them, Lord, as they uh, trust you in the midst of trouble. Father, we pray that you would be with our expectant mothers, that you would be with them. We are joyous uh, about these precious um, babies being formed within their mothers. We know that they are blessings from you, O oh God. And Lord, we pray that you would give them safe uh, pregnancies and, and good deliveries, we pray. God, would you bind them up and would you encourage them and give them great expectancy, but uh, joy in you and trust, we pray. Father, we pray finally for those who are traveling, that you would be with them, show them mercy, oh God, uh, especially with this winter weather. And Father, now as we come to your word, oh God, would you minister to us as only you can. That Lord, you would strengthen me and that you would give me uh, just humility of heart as we look to you as a congregation, as we seek to be encouraged by you. And so Lord, we entrust ourselves uh, this hour to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought uh, this morning that we would pause our study in Genesis and turn to the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms um, are just an amazing part of God's word that uh, beckon us to come to the Lord's presence and to acknowledge our uh, state of our heart. And it's amazing as you read through the Psalms, there's all kinds of, of, of different Psalms. But uh, the one I want to focus on this morning is Psalm 4. It's a Psalm of lament. But um, if you would stand with me as we read Psalm 4. This is the word of God. Written to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they 
have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. If you have looked at the Psalms, you know that they are divided into five different books. And many believe that the final compilers of the Psalms did this to mirror the five books of Moses. The genres are mixed, and we have a good example of each of these genres. We want to look at this genre of lament and consider Psalm 4. Lament psalms really find their bulk in books 1 through 3 here in the psalms. And while being a lament in Psalm 4, it also crosses into another category, a psalm of trust. And so what then is a lament? Well, you might think that this sounds like a child who is hungry or a, uh, a different sound that you hear from your children on uh, uh, at different times of the day. For us at our house, it sounds like laments around 5 p.m. as we wait on dinner. But a lament for the psalmist is really an expression of grief or sorrow. The psalmist crying out to whatever the issue of grief or sorrow is, that there's Uh, two kinds of laments in the Psalms. One is individual and the other is corporate. And when you think about the the people of God lamenting together, it could be over a national uh, emergency or the, the harsh hand of God as they would see it in the circumstances bringing judgment or a lament against those that would come to harm them as the people of God. And we need to understand that in the context of the Old Testament. But they can also be individual, like David here, calling out to the Lord. And so I want to quickly go through really the component parts of a lament, and I think it'll serve us as we look at Psalm 4 here. First of all, the lament is a cry to God for help. Is this not what we do in prayer? Is this not what we do in the, the midst of strife? We call on God for help. And then secondly, in lament psalms, it's the lament itself. It's the definition of what the psalmist is lamenting about. Thirdly, it's a confession of trust. We see that in all the lament psalms. A confession of trust ultimately in God, not the circumstances. Fourthly, we see a petition, a petition to God to act in relation to the lament or to the trouble that the psalmist is writing about. Fifthly, there's an assurance of being heard. It's encouraging to you and to all who read the psalms that a psalm and a cry to God is not one that is unheard. God hears our laments. Consider other passages in scripture that says that he holds our tears in a bottle. He's kind to hear us and to assure us that we are being heard. 
Sixthly, a lament wishes for God's intervention. It cries out in faith that God would intervene in the midst of a tumultuous time. Seventhly, we see a vow of praise, a praise to God that he is worthy of regardless of the outcome of the cry of laments. And then lastly, a praise that ultimately the petition is heard and it is out of trust that God will do what is pleasing to him. And so personal laments in the Psalms range from corporate laments to personal laments, from illness to loneliness. And so there's a wide topical range of personal laments in the Psalms. And I would encourage you and exhort you to read the Psalms in tough times, but also read the Psalms in times of rejoicing. There's a time, as Ecclesiastes says, a time to to praise God, a time to rejoice, and a time to mourn before him. Second kind of lament is the corporate lament, as I mentioned. And these kind of corporate laments are different because they have mainly five elements, but similar. First of all, there's an introductory petition on behalf of the people of God. Secondly, there's the lament itself, the definition of the lament as as with individual laments. Thirdly, another confession of trust and petition, fourthly, of God in the midst of those circumstances. And then, as we see with the individual laments, a vow of praise. And often, when we look at the Psalms, especially the corporate laments, we see them ranging from maltreatment by their enemies to national defeat or even despair. Have you ever been full of sorrow or grief? Perhaps a time of loss for you, a loved one passing away, perhaps going through a a rough diagnosis or a health concern. Perhaps many of you were full of grief or sorrow as we think back to the moments of 9-11 20 some odd years ago. Maybe we're sorrowful in this season of our church. Maybe we're sorrowful about a loved one not coming to Christ yet. Sorrowful for someone who has died without Christ. There's many needs and many reasons for sorrow and for grief, but the Psalms are the place for us in every season of life and whatever life would throw at us. So perhaps no other book reveals our frailty, our humanity, our need for the Lord. Is it any wonder that it's full of emotion and poetic form attended by musical instruction that even as the Proverbs say that a song Sung at the right time is like vinegar on soda, that our hearts are heavy. Is it any wonder that there's a range of emotions in the Psalms? They can be helpful to us in troubled times. But focusing in here, not just a general way on the lament Psalms in general by way of introduction, but here in Psalm 4, we see that it's an individual lament of David. It is a cry because of the trouble caused ultimately by falsehood in the context. David's honor has been damaged 
by a lie. Honor was seen as one of the greatest values in ancient Israel, as it is in many Middle Eastern cultures today. Even in the Far East, value and honor is to be seen. I recently was reading a war story from World War II and how even the Japanese view honor, that it would be better to die than to honor in a dishonor or to die in a dishonorable way, it would be better to commit suicide. And that was at the very heart of their culture and led to the death of many Japanese in World War II. You see, our honor is affected also by the community in which we live. David is speaking this psalm in this very context. David's honored has been damaged and he's crying out to the Lord. Have you ever been lied about before? It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts even more when someone who loves you closely believes that lie. You can only imagine the pain unless it's happened to you as well. It has been said that people will most readily believe a lie about you and your character before they will believe a truth about you, especially a lie that is about something negative. We've all seen this pain in the lives of those around us, let alone in our culture as We see these things abounding in general conversations on the news, that the the result is trying to one-up the other and cause pain and receive it or give it in some form or fashion. However, as God's people, we are called to a much higher standard. We know that God knows us and that we can be honest with him and yet cry out to him when we've been wronged or when we also have wronged someone else. But oftentimes we do not receive such grace from others. So let's look at how David deals with this. Let's look at this psalm in six parts, and we'll move quickly, but six parts. First of all, in verse one, we're going to see the supplication that David has. Secondly, we're going to see that the sons of men are against him in verse two. Thirdly, we're going to see that the saints are sanctified. They were set apart and different from the rest. Then in verse six and seven, we'll look at the skeptics. And then lastly, the seasons of sleep and safety that God is being petitioned for in verse eight. So let's move quickly. Look at verse one here. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Notice that's an exclamation. In the Hebrew, it's a crawling out to God. It's a cry. Have you ever felt like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? Oh, be encouraged, dear saints. God hears you when you call Even when it seems like he does not answer, he hears your cry. The psalmist says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Truly, God doesn't answer prayer always the way that we want it to be answered, does he? And you know what? He does that not because he's cruel, 
but he does that because he loves you and he wants you to grow. He wants to apply it in a very joyful way that the latter end would be that you would be more like Christ and not in the hardness of your own sin. And so while we don't know the exact context here of Psalm 4 connected to David's life as we see in other Psalms, we actually have some great principles on prayer that we should be informed on. In fact, our theology of prayer can be greatly encouraged here. Have you ever wondered if your prayers are just disagreed with by God? In other words, it's not just the the sense of them bouncing off the ceiling or God not hearing them. We know that's not true. We know that he hears us. But the, the fact that when we pray, he does the opposite. Maybe some of you felt that this morning. You were praying for five feet of snow and it was just gray this morning. You're all laughing because you know it's true. Others were praying, oh God, give us a sunny 70 degree day. And he also said no. Often, even the people of God can pray in different ways. It's it's interesting. But I find it comforting here that even if you feel this way, the psalmist displays a heart that calls out to God for him to answer, that he continues asking him for this answer. And what we see here as a principle is a persistence in prayer. Oh God, would you answer? Would you answer in this way? My heart is broken. Would you hear me? Would you, would you answer according to my cry? First of all, this assumes that we're praying. But secondly, when was the last time that you prayed like that? Great book that I love on prayer. The author says, often God uses the seasons of our life, good and bad things, to funnel us into his presence and cause us to be humbled to a place that we are at his feet once again, crying out for mercy. Church, are we persistent in prayer? Is it not that God, it's not that God doesn't hear us the first time. It's more than that. It's about what he's accomplishing in us in the season that he has not yet answered. There's a persistence in prayer. Jesus even taught this himself that as one goes and continually beckons God to act, that he cries out. You think about this in the death of Lazarus, that Mary and Martha said, oh Lord, if you had just been here shortly after, he would not have died. It was a a, a trust that Jesus, you are life, and if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. And he quickly corrects them. I am the resurrection and the life. His purpose in being slow to answering our prayers is not a cruelty, but a kindness. His kindness of letting it sit to accomplish his purposes in us, to cause us to trust him more deeply. Again, if you haven't noticed through the context of the scriptures, including the sermons that we've heard from from Brother Quinn, that he is not in a hurry. God is patient. He's long-suffering with the, the world. But he's also kind to us, and he patiently 
cares for us. Again, the world doesn't revolve around us. We know this, nor our needs. But he holds all things by the word of his power. He's ordering not just our lives, but the lives of billions of people around the world to his ultimate goal, that he would be worshipped and seen as great. We know this because of other passages in Scripture that God's desire is to be made much of. Often quoted verse in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And so notice again here in verse 1, several things by summation, that he is asking for God to answer. Secondly, he's acknowledging God as his righteousness. There's nothing more joyous than to know that God is our righteousness. The ups and downs of our life, our track record, is not where we stand before God. It is Christ's righteousness. It is God and his character and what he has done in his reconciling work on the cross that gives us that position in his presence to have fullness of joy. In fact, to be able to petition his throne because we on our own would be unholy people, but Christ has purchased us that we might storm into his throne room and beg him for mercy. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Have you ever been in a position where you didn't feel like you could pray? Well, welcome to the Psalms. But the Lord, even in his grace, gives us the ability to pray. The New Testament helps us here, even in Romans 8, that even when we don't know what to pray, God is interceding for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes just tears falling down our face communicates to our gracious God. And when we realize that it's not up to us to defend ourselves, we respond differently to circumstances, don't we? We realize it's his righteousness. It's what he's accomplishing in us. And our cries to God, our prayers to God, they're authentic. And we're truly realizing that God really is our everything. There is nothing more than we need than to be in relationship to him. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. And even in this case, David feels that he is innocent of this lie that has affected his honor, and he does not appeal to his character or rightness in the situation, but God's. That is instructive to us. Thirdly, we see here, he's talking about history. Notice God has given him relief when he was in distress. He's referring to something in the past. He's given him relief from something that he was in distress before this point. In other words, God's faithfulness in the past ought to encourage you about his faithfulness in the future. Not that it's dependent upon whether you're recognizing that, but it's an encouragement to you that he has done so and will continue to do so. Why? Because it's his character. Do you keep a record of God's answers to prayer? 
I was encouraged as a young man to do this as a teenager and to write down my prayers in general summative uh, format. And, and I remember my pastor years ago reminding me to, to highlight answers to prayer. And why? Because it would encourage me of God's faithfulness, not to just answer my prayer the way that I wanted him to answer it, but the fact that he was answering. We ought to do this very thing as a principle in prayer. It's a huge encouragement to see God's faithfulness, even in encouragement when times are difficult. But fourthly, even here in verse one, and I know we're moving slow to start with, but it's important that we get these because we'll see the summation of these at the end of the psalm. He requests God to show him grace and to hear him. God is not obligated to answer our prayers in our way, but he does answer prayers according to his will every time, and it's always in his time. For instance, when we're praying that God would glorify himself in a particular situation, God will answer in his way, in his time, because it's God's plan to do the very thing that he has purposed in his heart. And we are praying that God's heart would be done. We're praying, in fact, when we pray uh, before even the study of our scriptures, that God would open our eyes to his word as he's already promised that he would if we are listening and um, obeying his word that we would value what God values. Those would become things that we also are valuing. And so effectively, you can see your spiritual growth really in your own prayer journal, in how you're responding to God. You can see how your prayers change over the years because you are becoming more like Jesus and you're recognizing how God answers prayer. In fact, you give yourself more to it as you realize that he's forming you through this very command to bring your intercessions before him. And so we can see David's heart right here in the Psalms. He is a praying man, and he has been changed by God. And so we see David speaking to God first, and then notice there's a change transition here that he speaks to men. Spurgeon once said, surely we would all speak the more boldly to men if we had more constant converse with God. David's supplication has gone up to God and now we see him asking a question about the sinners that are against him and against his honor. Look at verse two, sinners. The question is directed towards those who have lied about him and affected his honor. The question asks, how long will this go on? Have you ever been in a situation like that that doesn't seem to relent? That, that God has just let it, let it happen and multiple times in David's life, many of the Psalms actually came out of issues that God allowed to stay on the heart and mind of David as he produced in him Christ-likeness. And so maybe you, like the psalmist, cry out, how long is this going to go on? And so in the very context here, it seems like this lie is going forth uncorrected. Its effects continue until it is exposed. Again, the liar being defined here, again, is, is giving false things. And there's really, ironically, two ways to get out of lying. And one is immediate, and one just delays the revelation of the lie. And really, we know from other psalms, including this one, let alone the rest of the scriptures, 
And the only true cure to habitual lying is repentance. Or we can also see that lies have to be covered up with more lies, and we see that even in the life of David himself when we see examples like his time with Bathsheba and covering that up and trying to even murder to cover up his own sin. And we are all like this, aren't we? Remember years ago, one of my children stealing chocolate from the pantry and proclaiming their innocence as the question was answered, asked whether they had eaten the chocolate, they said no, and as they said no, chocolate came streaming down both sides of their face. It's hard to hide our lies, isn't it? And so David is asking, how long will this take? And he's doing this in the form of prayer, and sometimes it can be a lifelong waiting period, sometimes as a short few minutes, but either way that we have been lied to, and it hurts and as believers, to be convicted and respond quickly when we have lied or when we've been lied against, God is being kind in enabling us to repent or to see our own sin. And for those who do not know God, of course, lying continues because they ultimately fail to acknowledge the Lord, the truth. You see this in the, the very crucifixion of Jesus that many were believing lies and there was really no reason to put Jesus to death. But such things were done that Christ would be a sacrifice for all who would put their faith in him. So all sin in this way could have really be considered living um, a, a lie uh, in this sense was was being shepherded towards the truth. In other words, all lies are really that the truth might be proclaimed. And we see this even in the lives of sinners who need a savior. We think about this in the gospel call for us to go and bear fruit. Why? Because they're believing a lie. In the context, it's certainly speaking um, of, of really idolatrous uh, men, enemies of God's people, let alone enemies of God. But truly, it's an honesty about our own sin. But notice the contrast here between the sinner or the liar in this case and the saint, that we know that we're understanding that we ought to put away falsehood. But David's enemies, what are they, what are they doing? Well, David addresses these faithless enemies. And he does this really in five ways. First of all, we see that there's a difference between the sanctified saints and these sinners. First of all, quickly, is he realizes that they are set apart. Look at verse three. But you know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So David's identity is in God. His identity is knowing that the Lord has set him apart and he set all of his godly um, fellow um, brothers and sisters apart to himself. He knows this. This is a statement of trust. But here is the contrast. The godly are different than this, um, these that, that bring his honor into question. And notice the Lord has set them apart. And so we see that God has done the same for us in Christ. He's set us apart from the rest of the world because of his kindness and his grace. 
And he didn't save you, as we see in this verse three, he didn't save you just because you're great and wonderful and gifted. He saved you because of his own kindness. It's for himself that he's done this. That enough is enough for you to chew on as you lay on your, your head on the pillow tonight, that he saved you because of his own kindness. What he desires you to do is for his glory. He bought you at a price and he's calling us to glorify him in this way. And this is so important to connect this to prayer because when we pray concerning ourselves or even our own comfort, we have to look beyond that to pray for the very purpose of God to be accomplished in our suffering or our trial that we are do, going through. That his glory, that his fulfilled mission would happen in our lives. And he does this through his providential means. That we are not our own. We've been set aside for him, for his pleasure. But the question is, are we obeying him? But we can be confident because he saved us, because he's delivered us as he's delivering the psalmist here, that he indwells us. Our life is not ours, but his. Our job is to follow in line with what ultimately his job is, to make himself known and for his glory. Your family, his family. Your finances, his finances. Your abilities are his abilities when you become a Christian because he has given you new life. So don't you see here the heart of the psalmist that we belong to him? It's an awesome covenant that he made in his blood, but the one that has something that demands much from us. As the hymn um, by Isaac Watts says, when I survey the wondrous cross, he said this, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, from his hands, from his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. Secondly, the psalmist proclaims that he hears your prayers. He continues here at the end of verse three, again, to proclaim that the Lord hears him when he calls because he belongs to him for his purposes. Therefore, David's problems are hilariously God's agenda, not his and I say hilarious because it really is a hilarious joy that comes over us when we realize that the very most bitter things in our life are meant for our good. We can hilariously trust him in all that happens in our life. After all, we're his children. Would you let him do this in and through your circumstances? And so he turns the corner here in verse four and says, be angry now and do not sin. In fact, Paul quotes this in Ephesians chapter four. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, he probably had Psalm four in mind because this is the context of Psalm four. He says, put away falsehood then and let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry 
and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. It's the context even of Ephesians 4 is this very thing, being truth tellers and putting away falsehood and also dealing with anger and its damaging results. Fourthly here, we are called instead of being overwhelmed by our circumstances, we are instead to ponder our hearts on our beds and be silent. We are called to ponder in our hearts on our beds and be silent. For any of you that have been stressed and have lost sleep, you know what this speaks of. It's usually when you lay down and you're decompressing at night, that the day's worries come back to your mind. How do you handle those things? Well, the psalmist obviously handles them through prayer. It's a great principle for evening prayer or worship in the evening. We remember the things that we have forgotten or tempted to worry about the things we know about, but don't let this unhealthy stuffing pattern develop that we become emotional wrecks. Psalm 6, 6 uh, speaks to this two psalms uh, over. David says, I am weary with my mourning, moaning rather. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Church, it's good to cry. It's good to cry. It's a correct emotion that God gave us as a responder to life and its circumstances. And I say this because there's times even in my own life, that I've had an unten- uh, uh, a tendency to, to stuff the emotions and, and allow them to build up over long periods without shedding tears. But this is not what the psalmist does. He cries out to God and he lets it flow. It's okay to do this. It's been said that even the, most, the person with the most stiff upper lip and not seeking to cry will have it a hard time to be able to even give a smile to a passerby. So whether for the lost or really for the sad issues that come in our lives, we know that eventually our emotions will come to the surface and God does not tell us to stuff those, but rather express them to him and for our good. And so we're encouraged to be honest with our anger, as it says here, and not stuffing it in unhealthy ways, but to ponder And notice he says, wait on the Lord. Now, I haven't made the comment, but multiple times here in this uh, psalm, it uses the term selah, which is simply encouraging the reader, let alone how it's being used in worship, to pause, to ponder, to think. Even in a devotional way that we would consider what God is saying in these ways. To ponder on our own hearts, in your own hearts, on your beds. Selah. It's a call towards pondering. And so in the context here, we are called to these things as people of prayer, let alone as people who are lamenting. Lastly here in this fourth point is that he says in verse five that they're to offer right sacrifices to put their trust in the Lord. Look at, look at verse five. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This seems to be basic that we would all get this already, that when life is difficult, that we would um, turn to God. But in the, in the history of Israel, it's actually the opposite. When tempting times came, they turned to idolatry. 
When life was dealing a blow to them, they turned to something else. And this, this, is rec- this is shown in our culture. What do people turn to outside of the Lord? Well, for the Christian, we would expect that they would turn to Christ, but you talk to many in our culture, what do they turn to? Alcohol. As someone who has uh, been uh, addicted to alcohol, what drove them to that? It's no doubt a sorrow of the heart. As someone who is in jail, ask the drug addict, the indebted person, the one who continues to spend more than they have, to spend money that they don't have and pile up debts. The the Proverbs speak of the sluggard, the glutton, the prostitute, and the liar. They have all something in common. They're trying to flee the pain of sin and depravity that deep down cannot be mended except by death. Or, as the scriptures encourage us, die to ourselves that Christ might live, that we might become regenerate human beings, a new creation in Christ. The fact is, life hurts. The psalmist is proclaiming this. It continues to hurt, and so we try to cope. We turn to food, pornography. We turn to pleasure. We turn to travel. There's a midst of things that can become idols in our life, and we cannot cope. Why? Because we're not going to the one who is the only one that can truly handle our life situations. And the psalmist is saying, but to you, I come because I trust in you. So God instructs here to hear through the words of David to offer right sacrifices to the Lord. Now, truly in the old covenant, this meant bringing sacrifices to him. In the New Testament, in the covenant that we are in Christ, that sacrifice ultimately is made uh, by Christ in our place, but also in the sense of what Paul says in Romans, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. Instead of turning to idolatry, we are to put ourselves back on the altar. We are yours, Lord, as David seems to point to. And so as believers looking back here to David, but ultimately to Christ, we can be assured that there's a better sacrifice that we have in place, and that is Christ himself and our identification with him. Our fourth point, look at verse six. As we come closer to the end here, look at verse six. It says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David is is quoting here, Old Testament, he is quoting this blessing that God would lift up their face upon, um, that God would lift up his face upon them, that he would show them some good. Isn't that what we want? We want a relief from our circumstances. We want God to look on our situation, lift up our head, and take away the pain. And notice that the psalmist points out that in the midst of this, there's skeptics in considering our faith. Notice it says that uh, down at the, at the uh, end of verse 6 that, that, that he, they're crying out that God would lift upon us, O Lord. And he compares that when we get to verse 7 about how they are abounding with grain and wine, but there's more joy in his heart. And so look at this contrast here. In other words, God, 
the people that don't trust in the Lord don't understand why we're trusting in the Lord in the midst of our circumstances. They don't understand how someone who can be suffering in um, a, a, a body that's being riddled by cancer and yet still have joy. They, they can't understand that. And David responds to the skepticism that for the people of God as they reflect that God's face would reflect off theirs. Lift up your face upon us, O Lord. Church, do you understand that the world is watching the very people of God? We've been studying this in 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights. That the church isn't primarily about what it does for you and I. It's ultimately about what it does for God, for his name, for his fame, and that his supernatural work amongst us is what it ought to be proclaimed and reflected upon a dying world that desperately needs Jesus. Is our community confused about who God is because of how we act? Are people confused about God because of how we trust or don't trust the Lord? It's a fair question. This is why we pray the same as the psalmist. God, shine your face upon us. The ironic blessing from number six displayed for us that God himself would reveal himself in us. See Hassel Bullock on his commentary on this psalm says, David's faith was not lived in a vacuum, but in his community. And he summons them to offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Faith interfaces in two directions, towards God and towards community. It's beautiful that God desires us to be right with him and right with one another. That what is in heaven ought to be revealed on earth. This is not what Jesus said about the church, that when two of you speak in these things, that why? It's to reveal what heaven is like and what his church is like. They are one. They are unified. And then in verse 7 here, this contrast, he says, you put more joy in my heart than when they have grain and wine abounding. James Mays says concerning this passage, the gift of trusting God transcends the value of any material good. You see, true joy amidst life pain comes in knowing Christ in a personal way, not necessarily the things that he gives. While he is nice and often gives us good times in him, we are not to set our hearts on those times or in our health or in great food, as he mentions here directly in verse seven. For those of you who had your taste and smell taken from you at covid you know this, the joy of even eating is taken away by one virus. Notice he says he has more joy in his heart than when their grain and wine abound. In other words, when people think they got it good, the child of God has it better, even in a sinful world and a body that is completely battered by sin and its consequences all around you. Your joy is in him and it's indestructible joy. You ought to take courage in that because even Jude in his epistle says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not only can Christ keep you, not only does he present you blameless, but he presents it with joy despite your circumstances. This is why the apostles could go to death 
with a smile on their face because they knew that Christ was waiting on the other side. And whether in life or in death, Christ was their joy, not the circumstances. And so be encouraged here in these final verses of Psalm 4, even in your situation, how the Lord's applying it to your heart. It's not just about you and your circumstances, but for the glory of your great God. Trust in the Lord and take joy in him. Fight for your joy. Even when it seems like the unrighteous prevail and prosper. Lastly, but certainly not least here, the psalmist tells us about the seasons of sleep and safety in verse eight. Christian, do you realize how important your physical lives are? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you by God. Our bodies sometimes are mere reflections of what's going on on the inside. We live in a world that is full of all kinds of physical ailments that are directly caused by the anxieties that we have not let go of. It's been said that many who are even in in mental illnesses could be relieved by just understanding the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Think on that. Guilt is one of the biggest factors that leads people into idolatrous responses of all kinds, from drug use to alcoholism to pornography to prostitution to all the things that we would see as evils in our society. You want to get real even in this last generation, this is what is even leading people to cause to consider changing their own genders. They're ashamed of who they are instead of becoming low and bowing before their creator and humbling themselves and crying out to God. The restlessness in their soul leads to greater idolatries and dysfunction and depravity. But here, the psalmist is focusing in on sleeplessness. So it's not that these other things cannot be addressed here by principle, but notice here that he's saying there's a parallel between worry and anxiety here and its effect on his sleep. It's interesting that sleep disorders are on the rise over the last multiple generations and many uh, scholars are are studying this and many think it's the the, uh, introduction of of uh, technology, of course, in our lives that we're studying blue screens before we go to sleep, let alone adding to the anxiety of all the information that we're bombarded with in addition to the normal anxieties of past generations that they would deal with on a day-to-day basis. We're trying to be known and make ourselves known to such a large part of humanity that it simply overwhelms the human conscience. We're anxious people. And so we may lie down but sleep flees from us. And then we add to this medical answers like drugs or other things that cause hopefully helpful physical benefits, but we find our souls still in the same position. What is the psalmist's recipe for this? He says, trust in the Lord. It has great physical benefits. 
Now, you young parents know that having a two-year-old is one of the greatest joys in life, but it comes with its challenges, doesn't it? And those challenges many times are in the middle of the night. And you can imagine a child that's trying to communicate uh, without words is just in the form of crying. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying. He's, he's crying out against all these things. And many times we feel like a two-year-old that doesn't have the language to speak, but all we have is cries to our God. And we get tired and we get irritable like a two-year-old without a nap. And the only thing that can cure that child's condition is sleep in a physical way. And it's funny here that as we look here, that David is saying that the physical result of his trust in God is that he will lie down and sleep even amidst the circumstances. Even when one is seeking to calm themselves down, it cannot ultimately be done without the Lord and God quiets the heart. Isn't that what David's saying here? That once I trust and rest in him, I can truly say that I'm okay and I can lie down and sleep. And so when we think about how our world medicates itself, right here is the only prescription for the Christian. Trust in God, knowing that he is sovereign, that he is advocating on behalf of us, that there is a man in heaven and Jesus Christ is his name, that we need nothing else. Church, do you hear the cry of the psalmist? Do you hear his prayer? May you sympathize with him that you also are being heard by your great God. That the circumstances you're in may not be relieved, but he cares for you and he hears you. He's using it for your good. He is accomplishing his purposes that you would trust him more fully, that you would cry out to him, that you would rest in him, that you would have peace and that God would encourage you that you alone dwell in safety because he's for you, not against you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Psalm 4. You are so kind to give us the Psalms that reflect our own hearts in many seasons of life. And God, regardless of what we're going through individually or corporately, we trust you. We take joy in you. Lord, I pray for each heart this morning that you would shepherd them as only you can by your spirit to mold and shape them into the beautiful view of Christ. As Paul said, that he would preach till Christ is formed in them. And so, Lord, for Paul, we see that it wasn't just a theological knowledge, but even a theological experience of Christ working that theology into their very souls. Help us, we pray. Soothe us that we might rest in you and you alone. Be glorified, Lord, in this church. Be glorified in this community. 
May many be drawn to Christ. May this church continue its work in gospel endeavors. And Lord, would you heal us and comfort us? In Jesus' name, amen.